from the History Yogi podcast, this is Dave. As Singapore and the rest of the world battle the COVID-19 pandemic, the history of infectious diseases provides some lessons on how their spread is affected by social and cultural factors and cannot be resolved with purely medical responses. Today, we speak to historian Dr. Loka Singh and Associate Professor Su Li Yang, an infectious diseases expert, on their book, Tuberculosis, The Singapore Experience, 1867-2018, Disease, Society and the State. So uh, thank you very much, Dr. Lo and Prof. Su for joining me today. I thought I should just ask the most obvious question. Why is it important to study the history of tuberculosis in Singapore? Thanks, Dave, for inviting us to uh, the podcast. I mean, anyone, I think, who is interested in the history of Singapore, especially the, the really remarkable period of change and transformation after the Second World War, uh, will be interested in tuberculosis, will encounter tuberculosis. You know, it's always one of the themes uh, and one of the diseases that people will bring up, you know, when they talk, you know, about that period of Singapore history. Even if they're talking about uh, life in Singapore history after the war, tuberculosis will somehow appear. I still remember, uh, you know, Chua Bing Hua, when I interviewed him for my PhD on the tuberculosis fire, uh, you know, we were having an argument, I think, about whether you need to clear the kampong or not. And in general, not just Bukehosui in general. And he was saying he saw, I mean, he, he lived in uh, Bukehosui and he, he told me he saw a man vomit blood in front of him. I still remember this is what he told me because of TB. And to him, that was, uh, you know, a sufficient reason to remove the kampongs and replace them with modern public housing estates. So um, this was a great opportunity to work with Liang on uh, to really explore the, the history behind this foundational myth. You know, when I say myth, I'm not saying it's, it's mythical, but that you know it has such a great uh, force as you know one of the ways to look into and talk about the history of that period of Singapore. So I come from a more medical perspective, and. It's always important, I think, that we understand that um, although a lot of diseases and medical conditions now have um, been turned into more scientific and technological perspectives of uh, looking at them, um, the social determinants are extremely important if we want to control them. And certainly for tuberculosis, which is woven into a lot of um, Singapore's history. In fact, if you look beyond Singapore, um, TB has captivated the world for centuries, right? So I think it is certainly important to look at uh, the history of such diseases to try and understand them. And it broadens our perspectives on perhaps interventions to deal with them in the future, or perhaps the unintended consequences of uh, interventions that we don't see now, because all the time we are just focused on the present. And the COVID-19 pandemic has kind of exemplified that. I guess let's um, let's drill down a bit further into the book's content. It details how the spread of disease was closely associated by the colonial authorities with race and cultural practices. Um, how did this affect the state's response to tuberculosis? Yes, uh, that's very much uh, part of you know what the colonial powers did uh, during that period. Uh, the British in Singapore, and 
other European powers elsewhere, even the Americans in the Philippines. And if we look at it from hindsight, I probably would say that was a distraction. Uh, it was not really productive. For example, the idea of uh, associating uh, tuberculosis with Chinese coolies who lived in uh, the shop house cubicles and were seen to not be able to practice uh, sanitary practices, uh, sanitary uh, way of life, and therefore was susceptible to tuberculosis. And then, therefore, they, they kept talking about the British uh, doctors and officials uh, talked, uh, emphasized very much about the racial aspect that uh, tuberculosis was literally a Chinese disease. Uh, and I think from hindsight, this didn't turn out to be very productive uh, because it, it sort of meant that the control efforts became rather a way to go after the Chinese, in, in a sense. You know? And it's not all Chinese, of course, but the Chinese laborers, the Chinese coolies who live in that part of the town. Uh, and subsequently, later on, after the Second World War, you have the kampongs come up. And, and therefore, it was also a, a, a way to go after a Chinese living in the kampong areas. But of course, after the war, the racial discourse uh, more or less uh, petered out and it became more, as we talk about more in, in the podcast, uh, the policy became more national in focus rather than racial. So, so that is not surprisingly coincides with the improvement in control efforts of tuberculosis. I, I mean, the, the, the other thing also, uh, sorry, yeah, uh, the other thing also is uh, going after the Chinese uh, was a very hard thing. The British found out it was really difficult because the Chinese uh, laborers, you know, uh, would not uh, resist uh, overtly, but, you know, they have so many ways to avoid detection, uh, which, are, you know, we, we still see today, you know, people avoid detection, try to avoid uh, complying. Uh, the British try to make sure that the living space was bigger to remove the, the partitions that allow so many uh, Chinese coolies to cram into the shop houses. But, you know, you could never monitor this. You could never supervise this 24 hours uh, a day. So, you know, uh, there was a, the, the problem was um, this racial policy was not able to get the support and co cooperation of the Chinese. Uh, and why would they, when you, you know, label it as the Chinese policy. So you see later on, tuberculosis control became a, a lot more effective when uh, you get the buy-in you know, from the population at large and people could see that it was effective and it was not you know, a punitive uh, measure. In some ways, you can see that this tends to repeat itself, not just in Singapore, but in other parts of the world. And it seems to be a kind of a bias that we have carried with us always. I think we'll touch on this later when we move to more modern times, I guess. Um, but we can see that um, even today, for example, there are many who believe that the Malays are more vulnerable to tuberculosis because they look at the prevalence rates and they just see that the disease is more common amongst a certain ethnic group um, without looking at what are the underlying factors that drive the spread of such disease or the mortality amongst them beyond the superficial skin color or the ethnic categorization. After the Second World War, the colonial government implemented a string of new policies to combat the spread of TB. Uh, what were some key measures and how did they influence the situation? Yeah, I mean, just now we briefly touched on the bicentennial and 
the balance between the colonial and the post-colonial influences in history will vary according to the subject. But with TB, you know, it was a period where we saw a lot of the groundwork that was completed and paved the way for future developments by the British colonial government. So TB was one of those things that uh, spearheaded the, the, the launch of planning in uh, Singapore. The medical plan was laid out after the war and a large portion of it uh, was shaped and influenced by uh, locals, by local doctors and professionals. And uh, it, it went on to lay out uh, a policy that evolved into the tuberculosis control unit uh, that was established at the end of 1957, just a couple of years before Singapore became a self-governing state under the People's Action Party government. Uh, so there are lots of policies, lots of measures that came up at this point, all attacking TB from different angles, you know, the antibiotics. Uh, for the first time, the, the agreement uh, to transform Nandoxing Hospital into a sanatorium, vaccination, the use of BCG, use of x-rays, uh, case finding, and the creation of a centralized registry that, that became so important in the war against tuberculosis, the uh, arrival of the medical officers in the schools and the interest in the health of students. And of course, with the vaccination, even an earlier age group with uh, newborn babies. So in a sense, this was the event of planning in Singapore after the war. And also this was a history of decolonization in a sense uh, that you can see uh, these control efforts, TB control efforts, as a way to prepare uh, for a healthier Singapore, uh, free from disease, through a whole range of measures to deal with uh, what was a social disease among the population. And, and this would, would be taken up uh, very effectively by the PAP government afterwards, after 1959. But arguably, some of the most important measures didn't originate with um, TB in mind, largely, um, although they had a huge impact on the subsequent um, control of TB. Are you going to talk about the Singapore Improvement Trust cussing? And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, further... I mean, that, that's one of the things that we, you know, if we look at TB as a foundational myth, right? It's so associated with post-World War II. Uh, but in fact, uh, there's a long history of uh, interest in TB, not so much control efforts, because the British were not willing to put in the money and the resources, but uh, the, the beginning of planning for housing, uh, for the urban environment, for sanitation, uh, that began with the Simpson uh, report in... Uh, 1906, uh, that was kind of the genesis, the intellectual genesis for the public housing uh, urban renewal that happened after the Second World War. So uh, that was uh, something we didn't expect to find. And it was really great to find uh, that there is indeed uh, such a long history that goes back you know, before the Second World War uh, to the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, there's a very consistent correlation, not just in Singapore, but in every country in the world where um, with socioeconomic progress, um, TB rates drop. It's so often a bit hard to quantify that, right, Leah? I mean, the doctors can say, nah, 
how, how many patients were treated or how many people were vaccinated. In terms of like, things like environmental improvement, urban improvement, maybe it's more that we probably give credit you know, to, to, to these factors for. Yeah, but if you like draw the GDP with PB um, rates in every country, it's a straight line. <laughs> the correlation is quite amazing. Mm. Yeah. So I guess now we move on to um, close to the post-colonial era. You know, disease was one of the five, quote, ogres of the, quote, subservient society, unquote, uh, of post-colonial Singapore, um, along with poverty, ignorance, squalor, and idleness, uh, which the PAP promised an all-out assault on when they won the 1959 general election. So what did the PAP do that was different from the colonial government's policies? Yeah, I mean, that's such a remarkable, uh, uh, you know, from the British uh, beverage report, actually, a remarkable phrase, the, the war on the uh, five ogres, five evil giants. And, you know, it can be used very widely because there are five of them. So you can use it for disease, you can use it for poverty, for education, for economic development, uh, for social uh, discipline, social engineering, uh, for housing as well. And obviously, I think the the, the big difference between the colonial and the post-colonial is that the PAP was committed to what we would call a nation building, building a new nation. Whereas the British, for them, it was to ensure that Singapore would be healthier, would be cleaner, would be kind of future post-colonial state, kind of the British image. Whereas for the PAP, they would build a new nation, yes, with that colonial influence, and legacy, but this would be a, a new Singapore in the uh, post-colonial image, a new kind of nation. And that's that's why probably the PAP had much greater success to sustain the policy as well. Uh, so in the 60s, you see that the TB uh, death rates uh, fell dramatically as well as the number of cases. And this can be attributed to the public health efforts, but also to the urban development efforts. And this this policy is sustained. You know, in many countries, uh, TB is sort of forgotten, you know, uh, as chronic diseases come to the fore and, and there are, there's an improvement in uh, living standards. I, I think this happened in Singapore to some extent. You know, so for example, you, you see that there are some doctors and, and there are people from SATA who are saying, you know, we should not forget TB, you know, we should continue to be vigilant against it. So I, I guess there's a competition for resources. But I think also you can see in the 70s and 80s, the Ministry of Health did try to keep track of the disease and to see, you know, for example, they realized there was increasing incidence among the elderly. So the focus went there. I don't know what you think about that, Leah. I think um, in my view, the question that you asked, like what, did the PAP do that was different? Um, intrinsically, what I felt was that the PAP was just so much more efficient at uh, delivering what they had promised and planned than the colonial government. I mean, you talk about the Singapore Improvement Trust, right? In, in a few decades, it built, how was it? Just about 20,000 over houses. Um, and the housing development board was um, far more effective um, in a shorter number of years whether that is related to the nation building or the, or the commitment to nation building. I think, Carson, you can probably elaborate a bit more. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason, actually, I would say the SIT did a pretty good job 
you know, much more than uh, the HDB gave me credit for. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's understandable. The, the main kind of technical constraint that the uh, SIT had was they were not willing to build emergency houses, you know, because they, they felt that this was bad housing. You know, it's not, you're not really designing anything, you know, you're just putting up, uh, you know, <laughs> in, a, in a sense, uh, very basic housing uh, that they would not be proud to associate themselves with. So there was a lot of resistance to this, but at the same time, you know, in 1958, just before, you know, the 59 elections, the SIT architects decided, okay, we will take away this, you know, monumental reluctance and begin to build. And, and when the uh, PAP came to power, HDB was formed the following year, 1960, HDB was told, you will have to build emergency housing. So essentially, that, that is the main difference. You know, it's not so much about money or things like that, but um, that once you're willing to build emergency housing, you can build much larger numbers in a short period of time, and that allows you to clear the kampongs. And so after you clear the kampongs, you clear the central area, short houses. So uh, on the topic of nation building, which you mentioned earlier, in Chapter 7, you mentioned how, quote, tuberculosis control progressively imbued the adult population of post-war Singapore with a new ethos of citizenship, unquote. Could you elaborate on this? Yes. So tuberculosis, tuberculosis control was not just about treatment of a disease. You know, it had social and political aspects. Uh, so post-war Singapore, after 1959, progressively developed uh, a national identity. Of course, after 65, after the Malaysia period, uh, Singapore became independent and uh, there's a new sense of citizenship. Uh, Singaporeans are no longer British subjects or uh, subjects or citizens of their home countries, or immigrants. Uh, they are now uh, Singaporeans. So what happened with uh, citizenship is it, sort of gives you, bestows a series of rights and responsibilities, the rights of citizens and also the responsibilities of citizens. And tuberculosis control, the, while directly uh, a control of a disease, also confers this sort of citizenship among uh, Singaporeans that, you know, if they have a cough, for example, they would have to, you know, go for an x-ray or you know, see a doctor and and follow through if they are found to have tuberculosis, then they have to follow through with the treatment and, and they have to finish the treatment. Uh, they cannot, I mean, one of the big issues after the arrival of the antibiotics was, you know, people don't complete the treatment, right? There's no compliance. So this issue of compliance shows where the tensions of citizenship are right there. You know, it's not just your health and your body anymore, but it's also uh, the, the health and the body of the nation. Uh, that you have to take into account the community and the nation. And of course, one of the most remarkable things about citizenship is the thing about spitting, right? Our perspective of spitting has changed so much uh, over the last couple of generations, so much so that in the past, spitting would have been commonplace, uh, but increasingly you find that spitting has become uh, seen as an antisocial habit. Uh, that's not just gross and disgusting, but uh, in fact, unhygienic and bad for the health of the community. So tuberculosis control helps to also change how we behave, how we think, 
about the health of the nation and the health of the you know, people that we do not know, other Singaporeans we do not know, but somehow we feel that you know, as a Singaporean, we should you know, be conscious of hygiene, of our health, and uh, if we are ill, then you know, there is a certain institution, there are certain doctors that we can go to uh, to seek help. I don't have very much more to add to, to that. I just thought you were some part and parcel of um, a whole series of um, achievements that um, was broadcasted at that time to say that the, the country can do it. As a young country, they can do it. What the British hasn't been that successful in doing, rightly or wrongly. Um, so they are parts of that uh, success and the nation building that Casting uh, has mentioned. So in this case, I would say that you you would agree that this uh, new approach to tuberculosis control does fit the pattern of other nation-building policies, such as building HDB flats and the introduction of national service? Yeah, I mean, all those are kind of social policies. They have their own policy objective, provide low-cost uh, low housing for all Singaporeans and to build up citizens' army. But there are also so the, the social and cultural aspects that come along with those policies. Uh, for example, with HDB flats, you have injunctions to live together as a community, to be mindful of things like, same things like spitting or urination in the lifts. No, 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 right? Those things are now all frowned upon and you are told to build good relations with your neighbours, keep the volume of your TV and your radio down. Yeah, I mean, it was an urgent necessity at that time when Singapore became independent, um, just like it was a necessity to provide good housing, improve the health of the population, bring in multinationals to build up the economy from there. So I kind of see it that way rather than uh, nation building per se. Yeah. Uh, we've discussed state-led policies so far, uh, but you also dedicate a chapter to the Singapore Anti-Tuberculosis Association or SATA. Uh, which is an NGO. Uh, what perspectives and suggestions did SATA bring to the table that the state had missed or disagreed with? SATA made two very important, uh, two two very important positions uh, that were critical, uh, were opposed to the state's perspective. One was the creation of a centralized registry uh, that was part of the work of the tuberculosis control unit, uh, which is to you know establish a, a record of all the TB patients in Singapore. And uh, just some of the SATA doctors did not, did not agree with this. Uh, this went ahead. The other one was compulsory vaccination just a few years later. You know, they opposed, SATA opposed that as well. And uh, at this time, uh, the Ministry of Health, this was early 60s, the Ministry of Health agreed not to make it compulsory. So it was not compulsory. Uh, beyond that, uh, I think the big contribution of SATA is what they call propaganda, you know, public education awareness. So much so that I think for the majority of Singaporeans, when they think about tuberculosis, they think about SATA rather than, you know, Ministry of Health or TBCU, Tuberculosis Control Unit. So SATA has done a, a great role, you know, and it, it was very interesting for us to study the work of SATA and the people who were behind it in the beginning, uh, who really were part of this wave of concern, not so much politics or nationalism, but concern for you know the less privileged people in the country, 
concerned to to bring uh, health services to them, and uh, you know, it, it is a very remarkable part of that. It was formed after the Second World War, and, uh, very remarkable NGO that looked to you know that was by by optimism, a new outlook towards what Singapore should be. I mean, Singapore has rightly or wrongly this. Um this myth that uh, the government is able to decide and provide for everything, right? And it gets uh, more prevalent over the, the decades. And that's not true, right? Because um, NGOs are able to provide um, services or to deal with issues that um, governments and ministries are not able to. And I think SATA was very able to step into this role pre-independence and also after independence um, to deliver uh, services that the government is uh, not able to. I mean, even today, when SATA has changed itself such that TB is not as focused, still the government is able to tap on some of the existing resources, including those buses with the X-ray machines <laughs> that were used a few years ago when we had uh, certain types of, uh, when we had the TB outbreak in Amokyo, for, for instance. I think uh, what I would have liked to have seen or have found out was whether there were other NGOs at that time that also dealt with tuberculosis or issues pertaining to tuberculosis. But uh, SATA was uh, so dominant, uh, we were not able to really find other NGOs uh, that dealt with, with this issue. Coming to the present now, um, why is TB still an issue in Singapore? Leave that to Leah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Well, TB is a disease that has a very long aftermath. Mm. Um, people are infected and they may not manifest any signs of the disease until several years down the road. So in some ways, it is a disease that is difficult to eradicate, uh, even though uh, worldwide, like the World Health Organization and other uh, groups have set targets for it in 2035 that I'm sure the world will miss. So, so two parts. One is that every year there are still about 2,000 cases of TB um, with its associated deaths and morbidity. And then the second thing is that the stigma to TB is still there. You can see it when you ask people about tuberculosis. They are more afraid of it relative to its real impact. And that kind of creates an uh, outsized issue that has to be dealt with. I guess one follow-up question that, that um, I thought of asking was, you know, in, in what ways that um, the history of TB control, the stigma around TB and all that, and social attitudes towards TB, um, are there any similarities between how TB was handled and the discourse that we are seeing around um, HIV, for example? I think there are parallels, but um, it would be a mistake to transplant one across to the other because they are really such um, different diseases, right? So the stigma is, I guess, accrued to different subsets of the population. In TB, it was the Chinese, the poor in the streets, and more recently, the Malays. Um, in HIV, it was the gays. It was a gay disease. It was a disease associated with um, uh, sexual morals. You know, loose men and women get HIV um, and not people who are uh, sexually more conservative uh, and drug dealers and, and such. So that the stigma is there and difference. 
Um, but what is indeed different is that um, we have seen a decrease in the support for TB amongst the NGOs and the population, such that it is almost entirely um, a kind of a government and a medical issue at present. HIV has very strong uh, private sector and NGO advocates even today who are able to push for many of the reforms uh, and the innovations in HIV control that we find lacking in TB control in, in Singapore today. In the book's conclusion, you write, quote, tuberculosis has, however, always been a social and political disease in addition to a medical one, and it is in this area that Singapore may have to undertake more substantive reforms, unquote. How does history show that disease mitigation requires a holistic approach beyond a singular focus on medical responses? Yeah, I think the, the case, the, the work of the tuberculosis control unit, I would say, very small unit, but it succeeded. It was able to function because of you know, the work of other agencies as well uh, and the work of the NGO SATA and the work of the community as well. You know, I mean, TBCU would not have been able to vaccinate um, the, the portion of the population or deal with the elderly patients or even the more preventive sort of measures such as uh, x-rays, screening, health inspections in schools. Uh, all this took place on a national scale and would not have been possible even with the government alone. So a lot of the unspoken history uh, in the history of TV is actually the story of how people uh, began to see that uh, modern treatment was effective uh, rather than avoidance, right? The, the tendency in the social history of diseases, people tend to avoid the state. If they are not confident or they, if they are fearful that the state is not going to cure them, but it's going to kind of punish them or hospital, hospitalize them in some way. Uh, so, you know, I think the, the, the social um, connection, uh, the community's uh, participation and support are very critical. Uh, and not just for TB, but for other diseases as well. I mentioned earlier that um, TB prevalence or incidence correlates very well with um, GDP. Um, but in fact, in, in Singapore, for a number of years, this wasn't true, right? So from 1998 to, um, you know, from 2008 to the present day, um, TB rates in Singapore have not really fallen beyond the uh, 38 to 40 per 100,000 uh, incidents that, um, that has been there. And that's because of two major trends in Singapore. One is the aging population, right? All these people infected in the 70s and 80s, they are now older and then they have a higher rate of a TB relapse. And then there is the change in the migrant population. Um, Singapore from the late uh, 90s, early 2000s started importing a lot of uh, migrant workers, um, cheap labor that drives a lot of the economic success of Singapore. Um, and these people have come with uh, TB that were not adequately detected or managed in their own countries, or they have uh, broken down here and developed uh, TB here. So these are not issues that a medical response will be able to contain. And that's been exemplified by the fact that for more than 10 years now, the rates have been stagnant. In order to deal with this 
uh, issue we need to suddenly do take a more holistic approach. COVID-19 has shown that the migrant workers are really underserved um, and by being able to address their social and medical needs, we can also cut down the the rates of a TB spread in, in the population. There are other such issues, but you can see that medical care alone is not enough to eradicate TB from Singapore at this present stage. We've been discussing the history of disease in Singapore amid um, an ongoing pandemic, COVID-19. So I guess to conclude, I'll just pose this question to the both of you. Um, how do you think the history of Singapore's response to COVID-19 will be documented by future historians? Uh, the same, not any different from any other, not just disease, but any other major historic event. That is to say that uh, historians would continue to use the method that they know best to penetrate the fog of history. Uh, that, that is to say they, they need to have the sources, right? So uh, I think we have been given plenty of information, like daily updates, uh, reports uh, about the number of cases and uh, uh, efforts, things like that. Um, but there is still so much that you do not know. And that is why you need historians, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, we, we are the ones who will dig into the archives to go behind the scenes of the sort of the public phase of COVID-19. So, um, for example, as Liang was saying about the migrant workers, what's going on uh, uh, behind those dormitories? We do not know. So the concerns of the state are kind of different sometimes from the concerns of historians. Having said that, historians are also interested in how the state uh, has responded to COVID-19. And so there's a lot of the response that don't get publicized and don't get talked about on television. Uh, so we, we need to find that. We need to find that. And, and uh, the people who have uh, documented these things as part of their work in controlling COVID-19 will not allow historians to see it until many years later. So we have to be patient. Maybe you can do it uh, 30 years from now. Uh, and the last thing I want to say is, you know, in a sense, from the social history of COVID-19, there's so much information uh, available, not just uh, in the usual media, but also on social media. So it's a question of how do we focus and target uh, on the you know, vast spread of information so that we can know how people dealt with, you know, like for example, work from home, right? Work from home is taking place in a sphere which is intrinsically private, right? So, you know, no, no government can document what happens at home. So uh, that is something that future historians will have a big challenge, but it's also a great opportunity to really do some fantastic social history. So I'm not a historian and I won't comment <laughs> here. <laughs> but I think what's, uh, what, Kassing has said is correct. I think um, our challenges to the history of TB in Singapore has been the sparse documentation. Um, in particular, the, the even more sparse personal recounts of uh, people who have lived through with TB in the past or through different era. And now it's different, right? There are so many sources of information. Social media is forever in, in as far as I'm concerned. Um, so there are indeed many different perspectives and voices that uh, future historians can tap on.